you doing, everybody? And let's get started with another episode of the John Riley Project. Welcome, and thanks for joining us this afternoon. It's um, it's Wednesday. It's hump day. Man, hope you're enjoying your, your day out there. I know it's a little warm. We're getting into summertime. Just had the summer solstice. So um, I've got a number of topics here I think they are going to be really interesting to, to explore. The first is is that you know there's constantly going things going on with the housing crisis, and I really want to look at the housing crisis through the lens of pursuing your happiness, you know, because that's what this podcast is all about is the pursuit of happiness. So I'm always interested in looking at the what's going on with housing. So we're going to explore some really interesting developments. This recent news, this expose in the L.A. Times about some affordable housing developments that are costing over a million dollars an apartment unit. Oh, my God. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about a housing development in downtown San Diego where there's no parking or, or very little. And then we'll even explore some, uh, some housing projects here in my hometown of Poway, California. We're a suburb of San Diego. I see Mike Devine on the live stream. Mike, how you doing? Good to see you. Mike, you're still always getting a lot of Getting a lot of crap from some people on social media. It's always kind of fun to watch. You're a good sport with it. Yeah, I know you enjoy stirring the pot. So I welcome your thoughts on this podcast episode. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at housing and a number of different projects. But again, through the, through the lens of the pursuit of happiness. The other thing I really want to comment on today is the Supreme Court and their recent ruling that had to do with uh, with education and religion and school choice. And I think this is a very fascinating development. And then finally, um, I want to give a, a review of the Netflix series Dark. And I just wrapped that one up earlier this week. And uh, it's a great show. And I've got some pretty interesting thoughts and comments. And so, hey, let's get into it, right? So, um, yeah, right on, Mike. I enjoy your thoughts as well. So, good. I'm glad we can exchange ideas. I know, Mike, you're a big advocate of free speech, as am I. So, um, looking forward to any, everyone's participation. You know, this is a live stream. That means we're on Facebook and YouTube. It's kind of a community forum. So I feel free to type in your questions, your comments. I'll read them on the air and we will make this a fun dialogue as we get started. So, okay, so let's get into this. Um, the housing crisis. I mean, you know, we all kind of know about what's going on with the housing crisis, right? I mean, things are wicked expensive. Um, you know, they're starting to cool off a little bit. Is particularly now as the Fed is raising interest rates, raising interest rates to kind of slow down inflation. But, you know, as they're raising interest rates, it's it's lessening the demand for housing. And I think some of our local realtors have even been commenting on that, how houses aren't closing quite as fast as they did. There's there's more homes that are on the market. You know, we're, we're, our mortgage rates are still a long, long way from where they were in the late 70s and the early 80s under Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. I mean, back then, gosh, what were interest rates on home loans? They were like, you know, what was it, 12 percent? 13%. We're still, I think, in the 3 to 4%, which is a big bump up. And that makes a big difference on your home payment. But so anyways, things are cooling off. Um, you know, and then, you know, the, our legislators up in Sacramento, um, they're, they're beginning to, you know, as we were, we were noticing, they're, they're kind of relaxing some of the zoning laws, or they're kind of forcing the issue to build more homes in California, because they realize there's a massive housing deficit throughout the state. I mean, it's a housing crisis. It's one of the reasons why housing is so expensive and so many people struggle to afford to live in 
California. And frankly, the housing crisis is one component, one variable of the equation of the homeless crisis, um, and it has a huge impact on our local economy. So it's interesting that the Democrats in Sacramento are kind of thinking about deregulation, which is interesting, and I applaud that. Uh, You know, they're moving in the right direction. I mean, we can nitpick about some of the things they're doing, but that's going on. And then, of course, as there's more development, there's a lot more local resistance to development. There's resistance Well, here in my hometown of Poway, there's a number of different construction projects going on. There's a new one that's um, on the docket here. They're calling it the Oak Knoll Project. We're going to break that down in a minute. Um, But, you know, it's just typical of whenever new housing goes in, the locals generally oppose it. You know, so that's part of the friction that gets involved here. And some would say it's an imbiism. Some just, you know, just don't want more congestion, more traffic, more more stress on their infrastructure. And I get it, but we're going to look at that through this context of, you know, the pursuit of happiness. Then meanwhile, right, we got the developers and, you know, they're always hot to trot. They're always pushing for new development because they want to make money, right? And, And they're looking for places to build. And for the longest time, they've been told, no, they can't build. Or if they could build, they had these really onerous requirements that ended up jacking up the price of homes. And then it's kind of distorted things where developers now find it as a lot more profitable to build large estate homes for the upper class. Um, and it sort of created a disincentive uh, to create what we would call affordable housing. Um, and, you know, affordable housing comes in many forms, uh, whether it's subsidized by taxpayers or whether it's mandated on developers who then subsidize, you know, the payment by the people that are buying the non-affordable housing units. So a lot of government regulations kind of distort that. But then in other cases, there's a, there's a disincentive for developers to build what we'll call market rate affordable housing. You know, just housing that's reasonably priced that people can buy, or in the case of renters, rental prices are generally, you know, achievable, um, even in a really, really red hot market. So a lot of that is being disincentivized um, because of these distortions. Um, So we're going to get into all this. I mean, you know, housing as a right, that's another part of this that kind of distorts people's perspectives. Um, So let's get into this. So I want to, I want to look at this, not just as the housing crisis in and of itself, And we're going to get into some more details. We're going to look at some of the crazy things that are going on. But I want to look at it again through the lens of your pursuit of happiness. And why do I bring this up? Well, you know, that's what this podcast is all about. It's like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's really my um, uh, kind of my higher purpose of what I like to preach about Um, in this podcast. I like to look at current events, current issues through that lens, how can we improve our lives? Um, How can we have more liberty to make choices about our lives? And ultimately, how can we live our life according to our own values? How can we pursue our happiness? So, and, and really, what is your pursuit of happiness? And it is kind of that, right? It's living your life according to your own values. It's making decisions that line up with your own moral principles. It's ultimately having success in life or pursuing a successful life, but you're doing it based on your own judgment and your own choices along the way. Um, You know, happiness is 
not like a fleeting moment of thrill. Um, it's a long-term rational plan that if you put all your ducks in a row and you execute a life plan and suddenly your reality is consistent with your values, and that's really what creates, in my opinion, long-term happiness. And the fact that we're all here on this planet, I mean, what more important thing is there to do in our life than to pursue our happiness? Um, but the other component of this that's really important to understand, and this is where we're going to get into housing, is in your own pursuit of your happiness, you can't violate the rights of other people to do the same. You know, so if if your pursuit of your happiness involves, um, let's just, I'm going to make up a crazy example, stealing money from people. Well, you can't do that. You can't violate the rights of other people in your pursuit of happiness. So that's sort of the, the golden rule to all of this is that you got to respect the rights of other people to do the same thing that you want to do is ultimately pursue your happiness. So how... How does that kind of all play off in this housing side? Because in the housing topic, I mean, we are, on one hand, I mean, we got people that are really angry. Um, they're upset that their community is changing. They're upset that there is now going to be more people on the road. There's more people on the freeways. There's we need more water. We we uh, have we're not going to have enough room in our schools. There's more demands on our infrastructure. You hear people bring this up all the time. But really, what they generally want is they don't want change. They kind of use these other examples of infrastructure and traffic. And, yeah, those are sort of indirect but ultimately, a lot of people just don't want things to change. They want their community the way it's always been. Um, and that's why they push for a lot of these zoning laws that restrict development. Um, but now we're starting to see some of those zoning laws break down. In some cases, voters are overturning the zoning laws, like what happened in my hometown of Poway. And um, in other cases, city councils are creating sort of exceptions to these plans. And we'll kind of get into that in a bit. And then in other cases, uh, Sacramento is basically saying you can't have certain local regulations that prevent development because when you do, you end up creating this massive problem, this massive problem of not enough homes and housing so damn expensive. So what's interesting is, is that when locals resist development of housing, when they resist construction in their communities for whatever reason. What they're doing is violating the rights of other people to pursue their happiness. I mean, of course, if you own land, and that's what's happening with these developers, they're, they've either purchased the land or they have an agreement to purchase the land contingent upon the city making a change in a zoning law. When, when you own the land, it's yours to develop as you see fit, or at least it should be. And in a world where you have liberty, you have, you have a right to your own life, <laughs> you have the liberty to make your choices, and you have the right to live your life according to your values, then you should be able to build on that land. But what's interesting is, is that a lot of people in the name of kind of protecting the so-called needs of the community, what they end up doing is running roughshod 
over the rights of property owners to develop their property, to monetize their property, and really to have a significant liquid moment where they and their downline and their family are going to have a certain a, a, a significant amount of wealth that they can use to live a good life and to ensure a good life for future generations. But still, there is central planning. Central planning by state and local government, in some cases by the federal government. And what's central planning? You know, that's when you've got regulators, you've got bureaucrats. In some cases, you have elected officials that are establishing the rules or making exceptions to the rules. You know, they're essentially pushing the buttons and turning the knobs to 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 um, engineer society the way they think it should be. But in the end, you end up violating people's right to run their business, run their lives, manage their assets, manage their property, and ultimately you violate their ability to control their own life. Um, ironically, people are wanting to control others rather than focusing on their own life. Um, and there, in other cases, they're demanding that, okay, if you do build housing, fine, but you need to make it affordable housing. We need to have a rent cap. We need to make sure these houses, um, these homes are affordable for, you know, people at certain income levels. They want to dictate and manage what other people do. And what's interesting is the more and more of the central planning that we've been experiencing, The end result is higher and higher prices of housing, which ends up directly harming the low-income people that these central planners supposedly are supporting, that these central planners and, and other supporters of them, people that support a lot of these zoning regulations, you know, they usually want to do it to, to help the poor to help the disadvantaged, to help the low income. And they set up all these rules, all these regulations. The end result is the price keeps going up, up, up. And then now we have people living on the streets. It's like a law of unintended consequences. So I was uh, really, what caught my attention was this article in the LA Times. And I kind of want to go through this with you. It was really interesting to me because they're building affordable housing units that cost over a million dollars per apartment unit. I mean, that's not what they're being sold for. That's what it costs to build them. I mean, this is insane. Like, how? why is it so darn expensive to build these, these kind of housing units? So let's take a look at this. Um, and I'll share the URL, the link in my show notes. But this was a, a big... A, a, an article got a lot of play, and it's from in the LA Times. And there are seven subsidized housing developments. Okay, so taxpayers are are paying partly for this, and they're all they're, these seven are all in Northern California, and they're receiving state funding within the last two years, and they're under construction or close to breaking ground, and they're going to provide homes for six hundred people, and that sounds nice, doesn't it? Boy, the state's getting involved. They're going to subsidize this. They're going to provide roofs over people's heads. 600 families are going to now have a more affordable place to live. I mean, it just sounds good, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound great? Well, 
The problem is, is that it's costing over a million dollars per unit to build these things. And that's just crazy. How in the hell is a million dollars a unit affordable? It's not. So now, why do they cost a million dollars? All right. Well, a key part of this in this article says a key driver of the increases is our labor and material prices, which we all know that, you know, is inflation, right? So these are all soaring because of inflation, because of supply chain issues, because of worker shortages. Um, and what's interesting is, is that the L.A. Times in their expose, in their investigation, found out it's not just that. It's not just supply chain and, and you know, higher wages and, and inflation, but it's actually a lot of the regulations that are put in place that have this unintended consequence, this counter effect, this um, the opposite of what you expected. So they found that there were numerous factors within control of state and local government that are to blame for the high cost of affordable housing. Like, for example, they, they talked about more, that affordable housing or low income housing actually has extra regulations so that when they are built, they have more stringent environmental standards and higher labor rates. So, um, you know, because that's where they're, you know, guaranteeing, um, what do they call it? A, uh, it's not just the living wage, but it's the, what is it they call it? Not the contract rate, but essentially they're, they're establishing a minimum price that the workers have to be paid to build these. Um, and, we all know, you know, the, that those that are advocates of living wages or in this case, in the, those are advocates of union wages, that's pretty high. And when you've got a whole army of people out there building these homes, that greatly adds to the cost. And then it's interesting that low income housing has greater environmental standards than non low income housing. So when they have these extra regulations, it ends up making the housing more expensive and therefore kind of gets in the way of making it really affordable for low-income families. Then on top of it, they usually have low-income housing, usually has really high parking requirements. We're going to get into this. There's a building in downtown San Diego that they have virtually no parking, and that's being built. I'm going to explore that in a minute. But a lot of these low-income housing uh, uh, developments have extra parking requirements. So what does that mean? That means they have to buy more land more land that's not used for housing, but it's land that's used for automobiles. And as a result, that just makes the overall project more expensive. Um, and then a lengthy local approval process and a Byzantine bureaucracy to secure a lot of these subsidies. So the, uh, this article was fascinating. And um, it looked at – here was one particular case. In San Francisco, there's a, there's a neighborhood in the city – called Hayes Valley, and they're building an 84-unit public housing complex, okay, public housing. And you think of public housing, you think of, um, you know, usually, you know, buildings that are not attractive, not places you want to live, substandard places. Well, this 84-unit um, public housing in the city of San Francisco is going to offer two, three, and four-bedroom apartments between, uh, that are going to rent for between $1,100 and $2,800 a month. 
That just sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Boy, I mean, in the city of San Francisco, rent is insane. I mean, buying a house is insane. And now a family can get a four-bedroom place for $2,800. I mean, that's great. But in the the city of San Francisco, the median rent for a two-bedroom apartment is $2,600. That's the market rate. So now they're going to be renting out three and four bedroom apartments that are going to be equal or lower than the market rate. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's almost like a fantasy, but how are they doing it? Well, they're, you know, they're using all these other subsidies. They're essentially robbing from Peter to pay Paul to do it. Now, um, what's crazy is, is that this project is going to, for 84 units is going to cost $91.7 million which translates to $1.1 million per apartment. I mean, how in the hell does that make sense? It doesn't. Now, granted, I know in the city of San Francisco, it's expensive to live. The real estate is high. But $1.1 million an apartment? I mean, what in the hell is going on here? Well, it's because of all these, these extra regulations that make it more and more expensive. Parking, environmental regulations, um, uh, wage requirements for the people to build those those facilities. And then, of course, there's all the other factors, inflation, supply chain, labor shortages, et cetera. So, and what's funny is, is that there was even a, another housing unit, uh, complex that they were planning on building here in San Diego, actually in Solana Beach. And that particular project became more and more expensive as they became having to become more and more compliant with these regulations, that that particular project for 10 units for low-income families also exceeded $1 million per apartment unit. And then finally, the developer just abandoned the project. I mean, I, I don't, maybe they didn't even start it. So the, they, they, this expose, they found these seven projects, and three of them are in San Francisco, Two are in Oakland, one's in Concord, one's in San Jose, and they're all over a million dollars per apartment unit. Um, In the case of this um, one put up by the San Francisco Housing Authority, $1,226,000 per apartment unit. this, This is just insane. So what, and then meanwhile, when in other Communities, like particularly in my my community, when they want to build not necessarily just low income housing, but just non subsidized housing, so called market rate housing, that gets huge resistance, right? Because the locals don't want more development, and then that makes housing more expensive, and then they demand um, low income housing, and then because of the regulations, the low income housing costs over a million dollars a unit. They make the rents really low, but then in order to do that, it has to be subsidized by the state government, or in some cases, local government, and then who in turn pass that down in the form of tax increases to everyone else. <laughs> so the whole thing is just a disaster. So now people that are already paying insane rates for housing have to bear the tax burden to pay for other people and their insane housing prices. And it doesn't need to be this way. Um, so, you know, we we all 
are on this planet to live our life, to pursue our happiness, to, to, you know, raise our family, have a career, live a life, go out there and flourish, be all that you can be. But it seems that in so many cases, people are so concerned about what other people are doing that they want to manipulate the system and distort the system to make it better for those other people or to harm other people. And in fact, they create these distortions that make it bad for everyone else. People are more interested in controlling others than pursuing their own happiness. And in doing so, they violate the right of other people to pursue happiness. Here's another one in San Jose. This complex has a two-level underground parking garage. Oh, my God. Here in the city of Poway, we've got a development going in with a two-level underground parking garage that they built right near a creek where the water table is pretty darn low or pretty darn high, I think I should say. And that project kept getting flooded and flooded over and over again. Eventually, the developer went bankrupt. That's a disaster. Um, But this particular low-income housing in San Jose, they had to build a two-level underground parking garage. And the highest level of environmental certification by the U.S. Green Building Council, and developers will pay construction workers union-level wages, And then San Jose government officials wanted commercial space added into this facility, which required even more parking spaces and a separate elevator and all kinds of other regulations just kept adding all these layers to make things more expensive. And then we wonder why there's a housing crisis. (laughs) We wonder why there's huge homelessness. We wonder why people are struggling to pay for rent or to afford a home. Now, especially with interest rates going up, it's going to be a lot harder to afford a home. A study, this is all in the LA Times article, a study found that projects that pay union-level wages to construction workers cost $50,000 more per apartment. And those built with stricter environmental standards cost an additional $17,000 more per apartment than those that aren't. So right there, these rules, these regulations, this central planning by bureaucrats, by elected officials end up creating this problem that we're experiencing. And so-called do-gooders that want to, you know, look out for the environment, I get it. I'm, I'm with you there, man. We've got solar. I drive electric vehicles. I'm with you 100% on that. But a lot of times these do-gooders feel so virtuous in doing what they think is the right thing to do without understanding the consequences of what this creates. And then meanwhile, there's always financial interests that are behind the curtain that are taking advantage of this. So these developers are going to do pretty well. You know they will. But in the end, all these extra costs are passed down to to regular folks. Then on top of it, you know, we talked about the Byzantine funding sources to get funding for low-income housing. Because, you know, low-income housing has to get all these subsidies from state and local agencies. They found that for Many of these projects rely on six government funding sources to pay for this construction. And each additional funding source costs an average of more than $6,000 per unit. 
So prices keep going up. Uh, and they said, yeah, most most states have like even large states have just one agency that does this. California has five <laughs> and they don't synchronize. They don't coordinate. And Gavin Newsom was upset about this and he still hasn't fixed it. I mean, it, it is. It's just insane um, what what they're doing to distort the system. So, I mean, I can go through this in more detail, but it's it's just fascinating. Here's another angle to this. During the pandemic, developers have had to contend with historic surges in material and labor prices. And those costs have gone up nearly 30% since February of 2020. I believe that. Lumber, remember lumber was shooting through the roof right after COVID. But the other crazy part of this is, is that a lot of this supply chain nonsense, um, not really not, I mean, it's a serious problem. The supply chain problems and the inflation that we're experiencing are also the result of government policies. They, you know, they, they printed over $6 trillion of, of cash and flooded the market with it in the form of COVID relief, $4 trillion under Trump, $2 trillion under Biden. And that, you know, when you print money, that, that causes inflation. It creates excessive demand. And then during the pandemic, you know, they were forcibly shutting down businesses, restricting production, and therefore lowering supply. So demand goes up, supply goes down, and we got this mess. And so much of it was avoidable. So it's just this perfect storm that's occurring right now. In in the greater L.A. area, there's a 79-unit development under construction in Hollywood. It's costing nearly $848,000 per apartment. So, you know, the ones that are over a million are up in the Bay Area. And, yeah, that's expensive real estate. I get that. But even in L.A., over you know $848,000 per apartment unit? I mean, that's just nuts. It's just nuts. So, um, Yeah, a lot of it is – a lot of it is – are these – you know, like I say, these, these do-gooders. And, you know, they have these virtuous hearts. They want to do the right thing. But when they do, they end up making it more expensive for everyone else. They end up actually harming the people that they want to help. Um, and the homelessness crisis is a classic example of that. And in doing so – in, in trying to help low-income people to pursue their happiness. They want to help them pursue happiness and live a good life, just like we are. But, but the way they do it is they make it more challenging, more expensive, and they end up violating the rights of other people to provide it. All these unintended consequences. Crazy. Okay, so we're going um, to take a look at this apartment building in San Diego where they're having very little parking, which I think is interesting to me. Um, and we're going to break this down in a little bit, but I just want to say this. If you want to find out more about the podcast, learn about the John Riley Project, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You go there, you'll see all of my episodes. I got blog articles there. Just wrote a, a new article recently on inflation. Um, you know, you can get on our mailing list. You can... You can follow us on social media. Hey, if you want to be a guest or if you just want to share your comments, let me know what you think. Go to johnreillyproject.com and fill out a form. I'll get your note and I'll be happy to 
you know, respond and get back to you. But I'm always, you know, looking for guests and I'm always, you know, of course, enjoying what I'm doing here, building this podcast. But, you know, I always value your input, value your thoughts and, and uh, considerations. So let me know. Okay, so let's look at this, this park. This, <laughs> the, here's the headline. Oh, no, my GoPro camera is giving me trouble. Okay, let me undo this. I have this, this new device that I have on my system. And it's called an A10 Mini, which I really like. And it's a camera switching software that I can set a program and it'll go from camera one to camera two to camera three. Um, But my GoPro was giving me a little bit of trouble and it started going on the blink. So I don't want it to automate to that camera and then give us trouble. So, okay, let's get to this. Um, here's Here's the San Diego Union Tribune article. And the title is, can a downtown San Diego apartment building attract renters with no parking? Now, this to me is really interesting. This is, in my opinion, very innovative. And it's taking it's, – it's requiring that the central planners think and become more open-minded. That knowing that these parking regulations make things so darn expensive, what are some things we can do to make it less expensive? So this building is at 611 Island Avenue, which I think is down by Petco Park. And they're going to have 443 apartments, but only 52 parking spots. So basically none. You know, 90% of the apartment units are not going to have a parking spot. Um, What's that going to be like? Uh, A lot of people are saying this is untenable. This won't work. This is a problem. You're going to create all kinds of overflow parking elsewhere. But other people are saying, hey, you know what? This is a new world we're living in. People are finding ways to get around um, using Uber, using Lyft, you know, using public transportation, walking, or heck, some cases, they don't need to travel much at all because they're working from home. So what are we doing here? So I, I like this. I like this as, as an experiment. I'm very interested to see where it can go. And so the Union Tribune, actually, they do this periodically. They'll interview all these local economists. And they ask him about particular topics. And this was the issue. And then they asked, you know, Alan Jin, who's he's probably the most famous local economist. He's um, a professor at the University of San Diego. And the question that was put forward to them is, can a large apartment building in downtown San Diego attract renters with no parking? And Alan Jin says, yeah, yeah, it could work. He says, you know, not many apartment building here uh, can do that. San Diego doesn't have the density of San Francisco and New York, but it could work for some people. Um, another, you know, kind of housing expert, Bob Roche, he says, yeah, more housing is needed downtown. And with micro units, the way, you know, where they're building these things are small square footage. With these micro units, it's sort of a quasi affordable housing complex. You know, people can walk, they can bike, they can use Uber, they can use Lyft. He sees it as a real positive. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of economists here. They're like, no, they don't think it's going to work. You know, and the, to me, they're kind of curmudgeons. I, I think this is a fascinating idea because if people, people are moving in with their eyes open, they know what this is going to offer to them. And they know that they you know, likely are not going to have a car because they don't want to, you know, play Tetris with 90% of the tenants not having a parking spot. And they certainly aren't going to want to pay to park their car off site. 
So these people are probably moving into this building knowing full well that they're not going to have a car. And honestly, for a lot of those people, that could be a godsend because cars are so damn expensive. I mean, what's the price of gas right now? And you could avoid maintenance and insurance and everything else and then just, you know, pay someone else to give you a ride when you need it. This actually could be a huge win. Now, um, according to Jamie Moraga from IntelliSolutions, rent for this project is expected to be 20 to 25% less expensive than other units in the downtown area. So there you go. Now they're actually able to provide rent that's lower than market rate because the, the units are smaller and there's very little parking. So this is good. This is out-of-the-box thinking to provide more affordable housing units. And they're going to be close to the trolley stops. So, you know, because right there at Petco Park, the trolley comes right there. I mean, you just have to probably walk a couple of blocks and you can get on a, on a trolley and, and use the trolley so-called for what it's intended to be used for. Now, I'm generally a critic of the trolley, mostly because whenever I look at a trolley car, I mean, I challenge you to do this. When you're at a stoplight and the, and the, tro- uh, the trolley goes by, roughly assess what percentage each car is full. Usually it's way, way, way less than 20% full. Usually there's only a few people in each car. Um, And why? I mean, because people still prefer driving cars. Um, That's why often I've often questioned why there's been such a huge investment in, in, in a lot of this public transportation when people aren't really using it. I mean, the only time I would see people using it significantly is when everyone's on the trolley to go to Petco Park or to go, well, it used to be to Qualcomm Stadium, Jack Murphy Stadium. Now it's going to be to Snapdragon Stadium. Yeah, for sporting events, for concerts, it's going to be used. But in a lot of cases, most people don't use it at all. So this is going to actually sort of force the issue. You know, I mean, as long as we have it, we, you know, we may as well get use out of it. And here now they're building housing that could accommodate that. Could be a good way to maximize the use of that infrastructure. So I'm generally excited about them because, you know, I get it. I mean, housing is expensive. And while a lot of our local do-gooders are trying to make the system more affordable for people, they generally are getting the opposite result. Um, And it's nice to see here in this particular case, they're lowering those regulations. Other regulations I know that have been removed is now they're going to allow buildings that are over three stories tall to be built along the coastal zone. Because I think the California Coastal Commission had a height um, maximum of, I think it was 30 or 40 feet. So, you know, roughly speaking, about three stories high. You couldn't build apartment buildings taller than that. Now they're they're as far as I know, they've removed that regulation. That's going to be a good thing because now on a single footprint of land, they can build a lot more units. And as a result, they're going to have more supply of housing. And, you know, by nature of having more supply to meet the demand, it's going to lessen the stress on the system and ultimately relax home prices, either slow down the increase or in many cases, lower prices. Like in this case of the building at 611 what was it, 611 Orange Avenue? You know, the one down there by Petco Park. 20 to 25% less expensive. That's a great thing. So um, love the innovative ideas. And the beauty is, is that in this particular case, 
you're giving people the liberty to choose. You're giving people the liberty to decide, can I live in a, an apartment uh, complex where I don't have a car? You're not forcing the issue. You're not demanding that they put they build all of these parking spaces to require much more land or in some cases to go dig and build a two-story uh, underground parking garage, which like the one in Poway flooded when that costs a ton of money to do it. Um, they're not forcing that on the developer. Instead, they're letting the developer to be creative. They're allowing the developer to be really productive and to come up with innovative solutions to make the units smaller, minimize the parking requirements, and therefore make it far more affordable for renters. And at the same time, the developer can be compensated for their efforts and get a return on their investment. I mean, I think that's huge. I think it's wonderful. Okay, so we're going to, in just a moment here, we're going to take a look at this new complex that's going in my hometown of Poway, California. Before we get there, though, um, I just want to shout out, you know, to uh, those of you who want to follow me on social media. I love continuing the conversation on social media. You can go to a special page I've set up called connectwithjohnny.com. Connectwithjohnny.com. And uh, here, I'll put a a little blip here on the screen and you can continue the conversation there at connectwithjohnny.com. Um, I'm really active on Twitter, probably more than I should be. Uh, and you know, I love responding to people to their comments and questions, even on the YouTube videos. I know Mike Devine's following and I, he and I have had some pretty interesting conversations or in some cases debates. Uh, but I love the, the follow-up discussion. So if you want to do that, go to connectwithjohnny.com. You'll see all my links where I'm active on social media I'm less available on Facebook, more and more, less on that platform. Uh, but Twitter and YouTube, I'm always there, it seems. Uh, so feel free to reach out or you can get on my mailing list. Go to connectwithjohnny.com. All right. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about this Poway project. And they're calling it the Oak Knoll Project. Now, first of all, let me tee this up. In Poway right now where I live – uh, 92064, small community here in a suburb of San Diego County, sort of, uh, I don't know how you'd say, roughly 15 miles as the crow flies east of Del Mar. I mean, that's kind of roughly where it is. Um, we're going through a ton of development here, friends. I mean, they, they are building three different uh, developments on Poway Road. Well, there's the one I talked about earlier. Um, it's called the Outpost. That's the actually the one that had the flood in the base in the two car underground garage. That project's on hold because the developer went bankrupt. That's a disaster. Um, but the uh, the Poway Commons, I mean, they're building all of these condos, these townhomes. Those are going up. Um, there's all kinds of you know you see you know. Uh, developers out there framing. I mean, lots of things going on there. And now they've just, you know, they've, they've, they've uh, cleared the earth of where the old Poway Fun Bowl was and the thrift stores. And people are going crazy here in my hometown. They're upset about it. Um, they, in my opinion, you know, they, they don't want change in their community. And in doing so, they want to violate the pursuit of other people's happiness of Poway property owners to have an investment opportunity to cash in on an investment opportunity. I generally support that. Um, And then there's the other development that's going up kind of near me up in North Poway. There's the farm, 
that's being built where where it used to be the Stone Ridge Country Club. Boy, you drive past that. It's like, oh, my God. I mean, they cleared the earth. I mean, it's like it's unrecognizable when you drive past that area. There's a lot of change going in. So now there's this new development, and they're calling it the Oak Knoll Project. And I didn't even know this existed. But apparently there is this little zone of land that hadn't been developed. And I remember I got on Google Earth and I was looking around and I saw it there. And it's like south of Poway Road, north of Oak Knoll. And it's a little zone. And, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, and, and, you know, generally speaking, a lot of my progressive friends, my friends on the left, say that they're supportive of development as long as it's infill development, you know, because they don't like the sprawl. They don't want the sprawl going into the suburbs, the sprawl into the rural areas. But if it's infill, they're generally supportive. And this is infill. Infill meaning there's like a, a puzzle piece missing. <laughs> there's this pocket of land in the middle of the city that hasn't been developed. So now they want to go in there and build some housing units. And I I saw the plan and yeah, they want to they want to pack them in. <laughs> and uh, you know, one of our local community activists here in town, uh, Chris Cruz, she was calling it the sardine can. Okay, I got you there. But you know, they're most likely, I'm guessing, building townhouses in there. Um, you know, it's not going to be single family homes, I don't think. Uh, so this is going in, and in order to put it in, they have to make some adjustments to the city's general plan. Um, and this is always very interesting because. Some people believe that we need to have a city plan, and then people often are resistant to changing the plan, um, just on the for the principle of the matter. They don't want to change it, you know. And sometimes people don't want to go with the go with the flow, kind of adjust to the times. Well, in my opinion, a lot of these general plans that cities put in, especially when they were put in in our case thirty years ago, back then. You know, we didn't have a housing crisis. I mean, there was a lot of development in in San Diego 30 years ago. And I think that's a big reason why we had a general plan, because they were afraid that all of this development that built out places like Mira Mesa was going to spill over into our hometown community of Poway. Well, times have changed. I mean, the population in San Diego County, I'd have a guess it's at least 50 percent greater than it was 30 years ago, maybe even more. And so now, um, in order to put this in, they're going to have to make some adjustments to the general plan. And so we had um, one of our city council candidates, Hiram Soto. He's a good guy. Hiram Soto, he and I have had some good conversations. We agree on some things. We disagree on some things. But he's a good man, a man of character. And he went to the city council, and he was really upset about this. He says, you know, we have a situation where being governed by the whim of the developers, you know, rather than by the people. You know what? Um, the developers usually are framed as some of these like evil corporations that are coming in and building in our city. But really what's happened is that when a developer buys that land, a local Poway property owner is able to have a liquid moment. They're able to sell that land probably for a pretty good amount of money 
multiple millions of dollars. That is good for them. It's good for their family. It's, it, it creates wealth that can be shared and passed down through multiple generations. That's a good thing. People lose sight of that. They lose sight of the fact it's not – they think of the evil developer, but they forget the fact that it's a Poway person, a person in our local community that owns that land that's going to have a very positive outcome as a result of this. Um, but Hiram Soto was very upset that the developers, they're the ones running the show. But who should run the show? This is where people generally want to have the city council run the show. But people are upset with our city council, the way they're running it. Now, in my opinion, when you have central planners running the show, rather than property owners making decisions about their own property, rather than property owners pursuing their own happiness, when you have general planners, you know, central planners that are trying to engineer the way a city works, when they do that, they end up violating the rights of other people to live their life, manage their business, pursue their happiness. See how this goes? Um, and in many cases, the people you're trying to help end up being the ones that you want to harm. Um, you know, when you want to so-called support people in your local community, you then deny them of an opportunity for a liquid moment. Um, so, here in Soto, when he got in front of the city council, he made a really good point is that they've had the general plan for 30 years, but it really hasn't been changed. You know, the city council just kind of makes some exceptions to the rule rather than actually going through a proper revision every 10 years. And that'd probably be the right thing to do. Uh, but some people don't want to touch it, you know, because they think it's almost sacrosanct. Um, but in the end, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's the same story. You know, all these locals wrote letters to the city council. You can't do this. There's, we don't have a, there's not enough water in our city. We have too many people on the roads. Our schools can't handle this. Do they really, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, you can make an argument for some of that. I think some of it's overblown. You know, some of it, there's legit issues to that. But in the end, I think they just don't want anything to change. In the end... They just want to keep things the way they are because they're threatened by change. Change is uncomfortable. Um, so we're going through the same. It's like the same talking points every time. People are angry. People are upset about the congestion, the traffic, the more people. People are upset at the developers thinking like they're these evil profit-seeking people while losing sight of the property owner that's going to have a wonderful opportunity for their family. And it's the same talking points of, oh, they hate our city council. They're approving it. They're letting developers run our community. But then the, the, the developments go in. Or in some cases, they don't go in at all. And then the housing prices keep getting more and more expensive. So I like the fact that we're, I like the fact that we're opening up. We're embracing change. We're embracing productivity, production. In our local community, in my hometown of Poway, in San Diego, innovative ideas in San Diego where they're going to build a ha an apartment building with very little parking. I love that idea. It's innovative. It's an experiment. It's a laboratory of innovation where they're going to see how this goes. And we'll see what kind of people are attracted to that kind of a building with very little parking. 
I think it's a good thing. So one of the things that's really important to understand when it comes to things like rights is you have a right to manage your life, but you don't have a right to control other people's lives. You don't have a right to centrally plan or micromanage other people, particularly innocent, peaceful people. So I've always been of the belief is that if other people have land and they want to build on their land, they should be able to build on their land. And if it gets to be that the city is too too congested, too much stress on our infrastructure, not enough spaces on, in, the, in the schools, then what you need to do is take control of your own life and then make a hard decision. Do you want to stay living here or do you want to move? You know, look within about what's the appropriate thing for you to do in your life rather than trying to dictate to other people on how they need to live their life. People lose sight of that. They, 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 some people want to pursue their happiness but don't want to extend the same rights to other people to do the same. They lose sight of the fact that the other guy has rights too, that the other guy needs to be respected too. So I know I'm I'm excited um, about a lot of these changes. Is it going to, you know, has it changed the the makeup, the culture, the character of downtown San Diego? Oh, of course. If you go down there around Petco Park, it's unbelievable the changes that have happened there. But in my opinion, they're all positive. We've got more roofs over more people's heads. We've got more development. We have more um, uh, productivity of that land. More people living good lives, um, more jobs. I mean, it's just overall better than what used to be there, which was a bunch of old dilapidated warehouses and the like. The same thing is going to be true here in Poway, I think, is that we're going to have more housing units and it's going to be more congested. That's true. But, you know, our community is going to evolve our community is going to grow. Our community is going to have more people, more dynamism. You know, there's going to be a lot more activity and in many cases, a lot more energy. Now, a lot of people are going to like that. I just generally like seeing productive change. I think that's a good thing. Um, and I don't think other people should be denied their right to have that liquid moment. So I don't know. I, I'm generally supportive of this because I support the rights of those property owners to be able to sell their property, you know, and, and, and to develop their property. This is America. This is a land of the free and the home of the brave. This is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay. A um, couple more things I want to get into. I'm gonna, I, I want to talk briefly about the SCOTUS decision on school choice and religion. I think that was a very interesting um, issue that just occurred. Um, but I do want to say this. I mean, I know it's a couple of days late, but happy Juneteenth, everybody. I mean, I love this Juneteenth holiday. I don't know about you, but I think it's the greatest thing. Um, and I did a whole podcast about Juneteenth a year or two ago. I should probably do another podcast about it. Juneteenth is like, man, it's like American Independence Day number 1A. I mean, we've got July 4th, the, the day that America declared its independence from England. But Juneteenth is like the day that the last slaves were told that they were independent, that they had freedom, 
So Juneteenth to me is a totally consistent with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That these slaves now were now in control of their own life. They had the liberty to make their own choices, and now their life was theirs. They weren't the property of someone else. It's sad that it took so long to get there, but it's great that it did. Um, and, you know, and, and to me, the, the, the angle with Juneteenth is interesting. I, I didn't know about Juneteenth until like the mid to late 1990s. So by that time, I was in my mid to late, yeah, like my mid 30s, um, mid to late 30s is when I discovered Juneteenth. In fact, I have I just discovered not too long ago the Tulsa race massacre. You know the Black Wall Street in Tulsa. I never I knew nothing about this. I mean, this is like a failure of our government schools that they are not teaching these things. But I love the fact that now we're finally understanding and learning about Juneteenth, and Juneteenth is a celebration of freedom. What could be more American than a celebration of freedom? But still, there's a, some people that are a bit kind of. Um, uh, they're squawking about it. They're kind of bitter and cantankerous about it. And they're, they're, they don't see the value. They don't understand it. They're looking at it through the lens of race. And yeah, that, that's part of it. But man, Juneteenth should be celebrated. And oh, by the way, we never really had a national holiday in the, in the month of June. Um, so I think it's cool. And I know like this past Monday was the, I think Juneteenth is supposed to be on the 19th. Is that right? Which I think would have been... Sunday, but it would, the federal holiday was on Monday. There was no mail delivered on that holiday. That's a great thing. Um, so I, I'm, I was just pleased about Juneteenth. It's good stuff. Okay. Um, what else are we going to get into? Let's talk just for a moment about this new Supreme ca- uh, Court case that was just in the news. I think it was yesterday. And what came before, you know, a lot of people believe that we need to have a strict separation of church and state. And I generally agree with that idea. You know, we we shouldn't let religion influence our laws, our regulations. You know, there sh- certainly should not be a a national religion. You know, we don't we don't need to have a theocracy like Iran is a theocracy, right? That their supreme leader is also their religious leader. And they run their nation on a set of laws that are driven by their religion. And America is a, a nation of, that's built on freedom. And we, we shouldn't have that, a national religion. And we shouldn't have religion dictating our policies. But things do get a little bit weird. And in, in this particular case, it, ha- it was a case in the state of Maine, and it was about school choice. And what, what was happening is, is that, you know, people could – use education dollars to go to public schools or government schools, but they were prohibited from using those dollars at private religious schools. And and they could use them at private secular, but not private religious. So the religious people are saying, this is discrimination. You're discriminating against religious people. And they actually had a point. Um, and so the Supreme Court said that it was acceptable, it wasn't a violation of the Constitution to allow this to occur. And in my opinion, this is a good thing. 
it's not necessarily that I support religious schools. You know, full disclosure, I went to a Catholic school first to eighth grade. Then I went to a public high school and a public university. Um, I don't support, generally speaking, the funding of religious schools. But I do support this idea of funding students and not systems. I mean, it's very similar to like a Pell Grant with for college students. You get a grant from the government because they want to they want to provide money for higher education. Now, we can debate whether or not government should be involved in education at all. And in my opinion, I don't think they should. In fact, I think that's a big part of some of the problems that we have. I think it's a big part of the reason I never learned about Juneteenth or the Tulsa race massacre. You know, I wasn't taught that um, in my U.S. history classes in high school and certainly not in elementary school. Um, but given that we have a system where government funds education, the idea of funding students makes sense and then letting students decide where they want to go. So they already do that with a Pell Grant. I mean, you get a Pell Grant to subsidize your college education, and you can use that at UCLA or San Diego State, but then you can also use it at Notre Dame University or St. John's University or Southern Methodist University. You can use it at a religious school because you're ultimately not funding the school directly with government funding. You're funding the student, and then the student makes the choice on the best school to go to. Same thing is true with the GI Bill. The GI Bill is one of the most widely supported government programs of all time. The GI Bill gives military veterans the ability to have all or part of their college tuition and education costs covered. And it's a it's not so much a form of welfare as it is a version a form of a an employee benefit for those that served in the military. I think it's a great program. It's helped a lot of people escape poverty to get out of a difficult position. And yeah, you do have to go serve as a member of the military, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. And, and yeah, you may have to put your life on the line. There's a risk. But it's good that, you know, on the back end, you've got an upside. The GI Bill is, is widely supported across America, both Republicans and Democrats and independents. But yet you can use your GI Bill to also to go to Southern Methodist University or Notre Dame or St. John's or here in Southern California. You could use it to go to uh, Point Loma Nazarene. You could go use your GI Bill to go up to L.A. to go to Biola. <laughs> you ever, you know, it's funny. When I first discovered, you know, when I was at UCSD, our, our sports program used to play, all, they were Division three, so they played a lot of the religious schools. And we would play Biola, and everyone called it Biola. And I always thought Biola was like someone's name, like there was a Mr. Biola that donated money. It turns out Biola stands for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Yeah, another, uh, another religious school. So you can use a Pell Grant or a GI Bill for in higher education for religious schools, but you can't. For K through 12. Now, to me, that, that's nonsense. 
So I was having a conversation with one of my uh, former guests here on the John Riley Project, Steve Dow, and we were debating it on Twitter. And, you know, he's all about not, you know, a lot of the same principles as I am of having that, you know, separation of, of religion and government. But he was even willing to say, fund the student, but not the system, as long as those schools were accredited. Like he says, we shouldn't be having government pay people to go to a school that tells them that they should hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings because it's part of their religion. I mean, of course not. You know, some of the craziness that comes along with that, we don't want to subsidize that. So if there was some form of an accreditation, great. But but anyways, I, I think this was a good thing. It was a good thing for school choice. It was a good thing to help our education system because the more that school choice is embraced, it provides more and more options for families and for their children to discover educational opportunities that are consistent with their own values. And it doesn't necessarily need to be about religion. So, for example, um, here in our Poway Unified School District, there are schools that have certain specializations. Like you can go to Valley Elementary in Poway and it's bilingual. It's an immersion Spanish-English bilingual. You can go to Westview High School and go there because you want to be in the ROTC. You can go to Poway High and go there because they have a specialized program in, I think it's like 4-H with like farming and that sort of thing. But imagine if now you're giving people greater options to not only find a school that's the best fit for their child, but you're also giving poor families that are stuck in bad neighborhoods with terrible government-run schools, you're giving them an escape hatch to get out. You're giving them an opportunity to escape the trap of poverty and to be able to attend a different school. I think this is a wonderful thing. So little by little, we're starting to see a lot of this break down. Um, little by little, we're seeing more and more of an embracement of school choice, especially, you know, from the Republicans. The Republicans have started to make this a, a very big campaign issue at the state and local level. Trump talked about it. Um, he had Betsy DeVos as an education secretary and say what you will about her. Um, you know, <laughs> Betsy DeVos, certainly I don't think is really the right representative of this particular thing because she just you know, oozes money coming out of her pores. He should have had a better representative there. But then again, you know, Trump was rewarding his benefactors, those that donated to him. But I think school choice is a good thing. Uh, Giving people the option to pursue the school that's best fit for them. And when you do that, I think we're going to see a lot more entrepreneurs coming forward with more schools to give people more choices and particularly schools with greater levels of specialization. Imagine if we have K through 12 schools that certainly met all of the main academic requirements that are you know, necessary to have an accredited school in the state of California, but they had a specialization on things like software development, um, on biotech, on a lot of other STEM fields, you know, STEM, science, technology, edu- what's the E, engineering and math. They had specializations in those particular niches 
That's a good thing. That's going to make those students not only better positioned to go to college, but it's going to allow a lot of those students to pursue careers even without a college degree because they're going to have a lot of those technical skills. Because, you know, let's be honest, a lot of skill, a lot of, a lot of careers now, you know, particularly in manufacturing, are very technical. Um, having a lot more of that kind of technical education is a good thing. I think we would see more of this. And meanwhile, there's a lot of other bilingual immersion programs I know a lot of people want to pursue. Like here in my community, there's a significant Chinese-American population. Um, I'm, I think they've converted one of the Poway Unified schools to have a Chinese immersion program. That's a good thing. Now, you're teaching people multiple languages, not just for Chinese Americans, but for people like me, like an Irish American. Um, Having more language education is a good thing. More, a greater understanding of other cultures is a good thing. Um, So I think having more innovative educational choices is wonderful. So I'm, I'm very, very supportive of this Supreme Court decision. Now, Granted, the Supreme Court, of course, is like 6-3 conservative, right? Leans to the right. And in some cases, that's a good thing, like in this case. But in other cases, it's a very, very bad thing. I'm very worried about abortion rights being overturned, right? I think we're supposed to hear something about that in June. You know, that leaked memo came out that they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I hope that doesn't occur. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll judge each case individually. But I thought that was worthy of mentioning. Okay. Um, how you doing out there? If you're, if you're watching and you're enjoying what you're seeing, you know, click on the like button. Give it a thumbs up. You know, that's helpful for the algorithm. Helps us kind of rank higher uh, in YouTube and in Facebook. That's helpful. Um, so if you could do that, that's always great. Um, you know, we see, I can see our live listener count, live viewer count kind of going up and down. Feel free to type in your comments and questions. I'll read them on the air. If you've got a thought about housing, about development here in San Diego or in our hometown of Poway or in general, if you have thoughts about pursuing happiness, if you have thoughts about the Supreme Court case, let me know. Type them into Facebook and YouTube. I'll read them on the air. We can have a conversation. Um, I want to get to my review of the movie Dark or the, the Netflix series Dark. But before I do, I want to tell you one thing that I'm working on. So... um. I'm really excited about this. I I built a website called happiness76.com. And if you have visited it, you you can go there and I've got a lot of t-shirts with a lot of positive um, sayings about believing in yourself and you do you and a lot of really positive, a positive messaging. Um, We have a shirt there for Corvette happiness. We've done a lot of really neat things there. And I'm going to start building this out more. And I built it originally in WooCommerce. Have you ever heard of that? That's another e-commerce platform. And I did it because it was free, because I was just experimenting with it. Well, now I'm, I'm transitioning it to Shopify. And I'm really excited about it because Shopify is going to cost me money. It's going to cost me 30 bucks a month to do it. But I'm going to have like a way better platform to load up a lot more of these products. And I'm starting to seek other third-party products. And I'm really spending a lot of time and focus on this because I've always said I want to monetize this podcast. I want to find out a way to make money on this podcast. 
Now, if you want to help support me, I love your support. You can go to johnreillyproject.com and you can donate money if you like. If you like what I'm doing here and you want to support it, you can leave a $5 donation or you can donate 10 bucks a month and it'll be on automatic uh, recurring uh, debit. We can do that sort of thing. I've got a system set up on my website at johnreillyproject.com. But I certainly don't want to depend on donations. I love to have the support. But I wanted to monetize this. And monetizing a podcast is very hard. Uh, you know, if you have huge viewers and huge listeners like Joe Rogan, well, then you're going to have advertisers knocking on your door willing to pay you big money to advertise. Well, of course, I'm not that. Uh, so I always figured I needed to create ways to make money selling products and services that were aligned with the John Riley Project. So that's why we created happiness76.com. So you can go there now. You can see the WooCommerce site. And shortly, I'm going to take that down and I'm going to have a Shopify site. And so I've engaged with um, the, these uh, virtual assistants, sort of contract workers using Fiverr. Have you ever used Fiverr before? Great site, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. And there you can work with uh, software developers, contract uh, e-commerce experts, social media experts, uh, video editors. I mean, all kinds of categories. I mean, the list is endless. And they happen to be in all parts of the world. I mean, you know, it's so hard to find talent in America. And it's expensive to hire talent in America. And if you're an entrepreneur, especially if you're a solopreneur like me, and you're kind of trying to get a podcast off the ground and trying to monetize it, what better way to do it than to be able to take advantage of a lot of really good talent and that are in other places around the world. So I'm contracting now with people in Sri Lanka and Nigeria and in uh, Pakistan. And these are like legit people that have done really good work for me. And I'm really happy about it. So now I've got a VA, a virtual assistant, helping me kind of build out my Shopify site. And I'm excited about it because now I'm going to have a platform that's going to be way easier for me to promote that site and to promote new products and run more ads to, to drive that business. And then, and then I'm going to be able to have a site that's going to sell products that are consistent with the messages I like to share in this podcast, which is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I'm just, I'm just particularly excited about that. So when the Shopify site is available, I'll let you know. Um, it seems to me that Shopify is just a lot more stable. It's a lot more professional looking. You know, WooCommerce is free. And so you sort of get what you pay for. But I know some people love Woo. Some people love Shopify. So anyways, I'm in the middle of that change. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. All right. Let's talk about dark. This is my last segment of the podcast. So I love watching streaming media. Um, you know, at nighttime when it's time to chill, um, I like to find I, – I really prefer watching series – than I do watching movies now because you just get addicted to it. I just finished season six of Peaky Blinders. That was great. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm all in on Better Call Saul and that series. Uh, you know, we're in the halfway point of the final season. I think it's season seven of Better Call Saul. So when I finished season six of Peaky Blinders, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to watch. And there was always this 
show that would come up and it was called Dark and it's on Netflix. And you'll see it spelled out with the R backwards and it has sort of a funky picture of a kid with a big backpack walking over this looks like he's walking on the moon or something. It it just seemed kind of weird and and it was it was in German. And I had avoided it for so long because I was like, ah, do I need to do subtitles and that sort of thing. But more and more I began I've been warming up to a lot more international content. Yeah, one particular show that I love that was wonderful is called Mr. Sunshine, and it's Korean. Um, and if you, with a lot, they've really improved a lot of the dubbing. So you can listen to English words being spoken, and you can see the English subtitles at the same time. And it's great. And they no longer resemble like the Godzilla movies of our youth. I remember going to the Godzilla movies and it was comical how the overdubbing did not match the way the mouth moved. Uh, now they've gotten a lot better at it. So this this show, Dark, is really good, really good. And it's and it's really highly rated. Um, IMDB, you know, the Internet Movie Database, which is a really good source, ranks it 8.7 out of 10, which for them is really, really high. 8.7. And then Rotten Tomatoes has it as a 95%. This is a really good show. Um, and it's what it's about is, and I'm not going to give away too much, but I'll give away enough to hopefully intrigue you to watch. So it takes place in this small German town. I think it's called Winden. And it follows these four families. Um, and the crux of it is, is there's missing children. You know, these kids kind of disappear. And then later on, some adults disappear and they can't figure out what's going on. And it creates this crisis in this town. And then meanwhile, there's a nuclear power plant in the city that people are very suspicious of, that somehow that has some, you know, ill effect, not only on the environment, but maybe it has some impact on why these children have gone missing. And then there are these caves that are in the forest there that are very mysterious. And they've heard stories of people going in the caves and never coming back. And it's very intriguing, but the cool part of this is, is that there's a time travel component to this. So while we're following these four different families, and we're not just following a certain nuclear family and a certain snapshot in time, we're following multiple generations of this family at various segments in time. So the primary takes place in, I think, 2018, 2019, but then there is a, they'll sometimes go back to 1987 or to 1951, I think. In some cases, they go back as far as 1880, where they're looking at this family. And in 2019, they might be you know, focusing on a grandparent. But then in 1987, they might be a young adult with a family. And in 1951, you know, they're a child. So you see these various members of these families at various segments in their life. But then because there is a time travel component to this, members of some of those families are able to go back in time as their own adult self. And then it creates all these paradoxes with time travel where they're either interacting with their parents or, inter or they actually sometimes they'll see themselves as a child or as a teenager. And it creates some of these awkward moments. It's just interesting. Um, and it, some people have said this is kind of like Stranger Things. And it does have a Stranger Things vibe, particularly when it goes back to the 1980s. Uh, but it has a similar spookiness to it. Now, Stranger Things is a lot more scary. 
this is a lot more um, psychological. Uh, it, it, the time travel and, and some of the crazy things that happen as a result, yeah, some children die and there's some crazy sh- stuff that goes down. But it's just a really good show. And when you do it in English with the subtitles, it's wonderful. Now, the cool part of this is, is that this is a very complex written show. I mean, it, 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 the, the, the pathway through the show, because there are multiple families in multiple generations with time travel, it gets complicated. And we have all these interesting discoveries where you think they're four distinct families, but because of the time travel component, people are going back living in earlier time, and then they end up having relationships with people in other families and producing children. And so it creates this very tangled web. And so you almost need to have this diagrammed out, and they actually do that. There's a diagram of the family tree in dark when you follow it along. And it's just really cool. And I liked it in general because I love science fiction. You know, I love series. And this is a three-season series. And it's done in three seasons. The first series, the first season's 10 episodes. Then series two and three are eight episodes each. So it doesn't take you that long to get through it. Um, but it's it's really well done. And, yeah, the critics love it, and, and rightfully so, um, because it, it's it's just the writing is spectacular. And the the characters are really interesting. And the way things are tangled up, I mean, you have to sometimes go back and rewatch or kind of map it out in your mind. Um, now – Philosophically, uh, philosophically, this show was very disappointing until the very end. And what I mean by that is um, throughout the show, they, they would frequently just outright deny the idea of free will. You know, again, here I'm the Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness podcast guy. So I'm a big believer in free will, that you make choices in your own life and your choices largely determine your end result. Now, granted, other people are making other choices and things happen in life. And I'm not saying your choices are exclusively what what drive your ultimate outcome. But your decision making is huge. You know, people talk nurture rather than nature. What shapes a person? Well, in my opinion, your free will, your decisions shape you more than anything. So, again, as a supporter of free will, I was watching this show and they almost denied it, you know, and not just almost, they outright denied it. They, they were saying free will doesn't exist, that there's fate, um, that there's um, your future is predetermined. You know, they'll say, you know, circumstances might change, but the end result always will turn out the same. No matter what you try, what you do, in the end result, you're going to be successful or not successful, etc. And they in this show, again, I'm going to kind of maybe go a little bit into the zone of giving some of it away, but they also, besides having time travel, they also had the ability for people to go into parallel universes. So you could track the same people in sort of the same circumstances and see the decisions that they made in this parallel universe. They called it a different world. And then in the show, those people also tended to have similar outcomes in all of the different parallel universes, 
which again was sort of defeating the idea of free will. But the good thing is, is that when you get to the very end of the show, what ends up saving the day and solving the big problem that they're trying to solve in this show was ultimately free will. And it was of human ingenuity that thought about it and figured out a way to change this endless cycle that they were in, this endless cycle of predeterminism. And they were able to break out of it, solve the problem. And it was all because of this, yeah, the the innovative human mind thinking rationally, thinking rationally in sort of an irrational environment, but really thinking it through and then coming up and experimenting and ultimately finding the way to solve the problem. And free will did it. So granted, philosophically, I was disappointed throughout of it. So many of the other things in the show still grabbed my attention, the, um, especially the time travel. I love time travel shows. Um, I think they're fantastic. Uh, but this one does it really, really well. Uh, so I can't recommend it enough. It's called Dark, um, D-A-R-K, and it's German. Just watch, you know, make sure you dub it in English. And again, I, I can't watch any show without English subtitles. Part of it's because as I'm getting older, my hearing has declined a bit. But it's just so much easier to watch shows, particularly shows where they have a strong accent. Um, I started doing it about 20 years ago when I was watching Lord of the Rings. And there I got confused when they were talking about people and places and these unusual names And I started using the subtitles so I could understand who they were talking to and where they were talking about. And ever since then, I've been hooked on the subtitles, and it works really well. In this particular case, it does a good job. So that's my review of the Netflix series Dark. I'm hoping to do more reviews. Um, Granted, I watch enough streaming media that I should do more reviews. And um, like I said, I I just wrapped up Peaky Blinders. I should do a review on that particularly since in December, my family was in the UK and we were in Liverpool and we did a Peaky Blinders tour and we actually visited a lot of the sites where they filmed, you know, the the filming locations. So we got to see a lot of it, which was wonderful. Uh, So yeah, I should do something on Peaky Blinders. Okay. um, Yeah, we're at about roughly an hour and a half. So that's long enough. This is the John Riley Project. It's episode number 278. Um, you can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, get more information. You can go check out my happiness76.com site. Got a lot of interesting kind of swag there, shirts and coffee mugs. And I'm going to start creating a lot more stuff there um, and then really promoting it. I'm very excited about this new direction to not only monetize the podcast, but to promote what I think is a, is a righteous message. Um, you know, that your life is yours. And you need to go out there and pursue happiness, choose happiness, create happiness for yourself without damaging other people around you. And that site, happiness76.com, does that. And it's kind of a cool time. So right now it's just the Woo site. It's kind of okay. <laughs> it's an okay site right now. But I'm really, I'm really looking forward to building this out and making it something special. Okay, um, that's all. Thanks again for joining me on the John Riley Project. I'll be back at you Wednesday, uh, next Wednesday, as I always do at 2 o'clock, most Wednesdays at 2. And we'll talk to you later, friends. Bye-bye. 
If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.